0: Okay, everybody, at, uh, yeah, I think so we're going to go ahead and handle get handle started. T- yeah. Yeah. You yeah. You mm-hmm. Thank you already. so yeah. much for joining us. It's the last panel of the day. I'm sure you're well aware. Thank you for your stamina and your enthusiasm about Medicaid. Um, <laughs> 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 I want to welcome you. I'm Edgar Walters. I'm the healthcare reporter for the Texas Tribune. I wanted to welcome you uh, to the fifth annual Texas Tribune Festival and let you know um, after this, this evening, there's going to be a reception at the AT&T Center don't want to miss it. Um, Just a couple housekeeping things. I would ask all of you to please silence your phones, but don't turn them off in case you want to be tweeting along. We encourage that. Uh, And we're using the hashtag TTF, as you've probably been told eight times today. Um, So uh, with that, um, I'll just introduce uh, our panelists. So here to my right. We have um, Elena Marks, she's the CEO of the Episcopal Health Foundation. Um, And then Deanne Friedholm, who's a former director of the Consumers Union's health reform campaign team and a former commissioner of uh, the Texas Health and Human Services. Um, uh, Billy Milwee is a former Texas Medicaid director uh, and is now a senior strategy advisor for the Medicaid consulting firm Sellers Dorsey. Uh, to his right, we have Jamie Dudensing, she's the CEO of the Texas Association of Health Plans, um, and formerly with Lieutenant Governor David Dewhurst. And then uh, we have um, Dean Clay Johnston, who's the Dean of the Dell Medical School at the University of Texas at Austin. Um, so thank you all for being here. I figured we'd start. Uh, Medicaid in Texas now, we've we've passed 4 million enrollees, I think we're up to about 4.1, if my latest numbers are correct, um, it's grow. You know, it's growing. It's sort of growing importance um, as as a budget item. And I would say, in today's political climate, we hear a lot about Medicaid being quote unquote a broken system. Um, but I wonder. So, so if it's broken, um, and sort of given the political constraints that we we sort of exist in in 2015. How do we go about fixing it? Um, Maybe I'll start with you, Jamie.
1: Well, so I would start off there. You know, it's a very big question on fixing the entire Medicaid program. First, I would say Texas has actually done a lot to reform the Medicaid program within the constraints that it's allowed by the federal government. So we were one of the very first states to invest in community care. We were one of the very first states that provided long-term care services in someone's home, to the elderly and disabled instead of forcing them to have to be institutionalized. We were one of the very first states that found a way to integrate long-term care and acute care and provide it as one whole benefit package. We, you know, we took steps in the last few years to implement the Community First Choice program which is providing attendant services to individuals el- all individuals that are eligible. No more waiting lists for attendant services for individuals who have intellectual disabilities. And we have contained costs in the Medicaid program. We're one of the lowest spending states and we continue to have a lower per capita growth spend than most other states. So So, we're doing a good job.
0: So why but then why do we have then this this rhetoric? I mean
1: So what I what I will say is the Medicaid program is growing and a big part of the cost problem is caseloads, but at the same time, it is completely reasonable for Texas House and the Texas Senate and the members here to say, you know, we want to bring the Medicaid program into the 21st century. It's completely reasonable for us to have personal responsibility, co-pays. We shouldn't have to go to the federal government for every single piece that we try to implement to get permission for it. You know, a good example is that most of the Medicaid program operates on a waiver. And most people now know what a waiver is because of the 1115 district project waiver. But we've been operating under waivers for 20 years. A waiver is basically permission to go against federal law. It's basically the feds telling us, you know what, we agree. What's in the Social Security Act isn't right. You need you know, flexibility to go implement what's better, community care, lower cost projects. But you have to come and get permission. You have to spend years getting permission, tons of paperwork prove that it's going to do all these things, to get permission to just do one thing that we all know is already a better system.
0: Um, so so flexibility seems to be um, sort of a buzzword these days, um, certainly among conservative uh, circle, you know, reformers looking to, um, you know, change or, or make more efficient the Medicaid program. Um, I wonder for some of uh, the people who have been dealing with Texas Medicaid for, you know, Under previous administrations, I mean, has the rhetoric always been this political? Has it, you know, has it always, I mean, (laughs) would we be having this uh, Medicaid expansion fight, which I'm sure we'll get to, um, had this been, I don't know, 30 years ago, 20 years ago?
2: Um, I'm I'm from the 20, uh, (laughs) 30-year-ago generation. I ran Medicaid 20 years ago uh, under Ann Richards. And I agree uh, with Jamie that, that you do have to seek waivers, but I think I just heard described a, a program that has federal standards. Uh, they pay most of the money uh, for the program still, always has, and that they want to make sure that, s- that certain, uh, make sure that populations are well served. I did the community care uh, waiver and the first managed care waivers back when, and it's, it is a lot of paperwork. But I feel like there's a real purpose there, which is to ensure that um, the intent of getting good health care to people is, is fulfilled. And you know, I would question sometimes, you know, whether or not states deserve to get to, you know own this program unless they're just going to pull out of Medicaid completely and fund it completely themselves.. Um, Because, for example, you know, one area that the states have complete control over is reimbursements for providers, and one of the biggest problems in Texas Medicaid, and it was true when I was here, and unfortunately it's even worse now, was making sure that enough providers would take Medicaid so that the individuals who are covered, these 4 million people, actually truly have access in the system. Uh, That's a state decision, and that state's decision has always been... uh, you know, to not fund providers. And this is from, a, like, a consumer point of view. You want them to have access so they can get into the doctor's office. Oh,
3: go ahead.
4: Uh, well, I've, I've been in and around the Medicaid for program for about 20 years, and in that 20 years, the political rhetoric has increased. At one point, the politics were largely around the providers that were in the program, and payment rates, and uh, if the physicians were going to get a rate increase, or the hospitals, and, and all those kinds of dynamics. And I think now the politics have become more about the rhetoric and more about the flexibility, and it's, it's kind of uh, interesting because in Texas, uh, the 1115 waiver we have now is probably the most flexible funding mechanism ever granted any state mm-hmm. in, the, in the United States. We have $29.5 billion in that waiver that is funding things at the local and community based level that is, has personally been unheard of. So it's a, it's a good model for going forward. But the, the complaint and the mantra is still going to be around uh, more flexibility within the program. And it goes back to the governance issues, I think, that Jamie raised around the relationship between the federal government and the state government, and the federal government pulling a lot of strings, and, you know, rightfully so, because they do have a lot of money involved. But that process could be streamed by a whole lot. And uh, I,
0: would I, I would like to get back to, to this discussion of, um, of the 1115 waiver. But first, I just want to expand on something that uh, you were saying, Deanne, and pose the question to Clay, so, so we're hearing, um, you know, we hear from physicians groups, for example, that I think very few, around 3 in 10 doctors these days are actually accepting new Medicaid patients, uh, you know, the complaint is that reimbursements are too low. Um, in, from your perspective, preparing a new, you know, group, of, you know, teaching classes of medical students, sort of what is their expectation um, for their interactions with the Medicaid program, and um, if they don't realistically see themselves being able to make a living off of that, then what do you do about it?
5: Yeah, well, I, I would say they have no expectations about the Medicaid program. They don't even know, understand really what it is. But, the, um, but they do have an expectation to treat ev- everybody. I mean, I think it's, it's pretty common amongst med students, you know, at the coming in, that they're in it not to make money, not because it is a stable income, but because they want to take care of people. And they don't want to, and the vast majority don't feel better about caring for people who are poor than caring for people who are, are more wealthy, vast majority. Then the realities of life hit them, um, and, um, and then they start to see the trade-offs. And yes, based on current rates of reimbursement, they lose money, not even just make less, they lose money on every Medicaid patient that they see. So they have to balance that by making money on someone else, right? They already have a, this weird system where they themselves are doing this balancing act of, so that they can just pay all their office staff workers and have a, a, a salary for themselves. That they, The students that we're trying to select, we don't want to pound this out of them. We, wanna, we want them to come in because, of, in part, of that altruism in solving these problems. And we want to help them to embrace that. But then the only way this will work is if we have, again, additional flexibility downstream so that when they get out there, it's not, they're not being treated as a fee-for-service interaction with a patient that's a, that's a financial loss, but rather they're given the freedom to care for a population of patients. So, in other words, if they care, if, they, if we tell them, I don't, I don't, um, I'm not going to pay you based on the number of office visits, I'm going to pay you based on... The, the panel of patients that you have, the 5,000 primary care patients that you oversee, and how healthy they are, yep. and how much you can keep them out of the emergency room and out of the hospital, and you know all the markers that it can do. That. And you can use whoever you want to help you to do that. right? Because the other thing is, is, we're very, very doctor-centered. We, we should not be so doctor-centered. Um, maybe it's a nurse or a pharmacist that's part of this team. Maybe you're using technologies to communicate and get their blood pressure and follow their diabetes and all of that. It, that flexibility, if we can get ready for that system downstream, so that our students can can enter that, and that it needs to be the future, that that's what we're trying to set up.
0: So, um, so Elena, we you know we're we're talking sort of here about new sort of innovative payment mechanisms. You know, there's been a shift among the federal government in Medicare payments to move to some of this more bundled payment system, sort of you know, shifting the risk, if you will. Um, uh, I'm wondering if, you know, is now the time to start having these conversations about, um, you know, what should we actually be funding? I know you've worked a lot with, um, you know, social determinants of health. Maybe you could sort of expand on that a little bit.
6: Well, uh, two things. First, following up on what Clay was saying, because Medicaid um, is mostly administered through managed care plans in Texas, the managed care companies get a set amount per member per month. And so they are capitated. And they are primed to work with providers to provide care in a comprehensive way. But the providers have to be willing to take risk. And it's been difficult getting providers to be ready to take risk. And is so, that,
0: Is that a question of mentality or is that it's, for financial reasons?
6: it it's I think it's mostly financial reasons and the fear of risk. As much as everyone complains about the Medicaid fee schedule being so low, they know that if they see a patient, they will get paid. Even if it's not a lot of money, they will get paid something. And if you talk about paying for performance and bundling payments and paying for quality, then the provider is at risk that they may not get paid because they may not meet the metrics. They know they meet the metrics when it's based on delivery of a service. And getting them to be willing to change their mindset is something that some of the creative managed care organizations are doing and something uh, through our foundation that we're trying to support by essentially underwriting um, the risk that providers would take by going into bundled payment arrangements. Um,
0: And and if your payments are depending on these quality measures, I mean, obviously there's a lot at stake with them. Um, So I I wonder... um, you know, what, what is it that Medicaid actually should be measuring? I mean, how do we cater these payments to m- make them be incentivizing the most efficient and effective care? Um, so, Billy, Jamie, whoever.
4: We Texas is um, is far ahead of many states. If you look at everything that's been written about health care and, and waste in the system, there's about 30% of every dollar spent in health care is wasted on either... People going to hospitals and getting admitted where they don't need to be, they're readmitted, or they're in emergency departments that don't need to be, or it's overuse of diagnostic uh, services that they don't really need. Texas, many years ago, um, started down a path of using preventable uh, hospital admissions, readmissions, um, and AD visits as an incentive in the managed care program. So the health plans today are held at risk based on those metrics. And so they have a financial incentive to keep people from getting admitted to the hospital, that don't need to be there. To keep them out of the emergency department, and then and then to work with hospitals that have a low readmission rate. And similarly, in the fee for service program, hospitals take a, a financial hit for um, readmissions and for complications. So, Texas is going down a path that is is really really going to get very very interesting in the next few years, and are, it's already showing some results.
0: But our providers, I mean, it it seems like that may run the risk. Um, you know, I'd seen a study out of Harvard. Um, school of public health, for example, suggesting under Medicare they had a similar sort of incentive payment for hospital readmissions, and sort of the, the thesis of the paper was that actually poor hospitals were being penalized for seeing poor patients. Uh, is there some risk difference?
1: Well, and I was going to say there are ways to when you it really when you look at measure, you're wanting to compare someone to themselves, and you you risk adjust, you adjust for acuity, you can even adjust now for income status. And then when you're looking at the Medicaid program, you're talking about a group of individuals that are very similar in socioeconomic status or in an area, so if you're looking at one hospital measuring itself over time, or a health plan that's serving that population, and what you're really looking at is, are you making it better? And are you making it better to similar peers as yourself? And what we saw from 2009 to 2011 were double-digit reductions in hospital missions for things like diabetes, asthma, pneumonia, certain kinds of infections. So you're seeing, and that wouldn't be happening if people weren't getting the care they needed outside, getting that kind of right care, right time, right place happening. So you're seeing those types of things happen in Texas. And what you see, and what Elena was talking about with health plans, and, and to pro- kind of provide an antidote for it, health plans are required to provide all of the benefits that the state has to provide. But because it's capitated, the, the federal government allows them the flexibility to do more, to do very interesting, different things. And one of the best examples I used to give was if someone was in a hospital, they needed community care services, and they are gonna move in their house, but they needed a wheelchair ramp. In the old system, they stayed in the hospital for two more weeks, right. three more weeks. Right. In the new system, the health plan just goes and gets a wheelchair ramp built that day mm-hmm. and moves them out of the hospital. They have less risk of getting pneumonia in the hospital other kinds of infections, they're back at home where they want to be with their family, and now they have community care services. Another example, a mental health example, Cigna in South Texas, super utilizers, schizophrenia and other types of situations, they went out and said, we want to make sure they're getting, and they were going to the hospital three times a month. We want to make sure they're getting everything they need when they need it. They went and found them wherever they were. They took, sent nurses over you know, to underpasses if they were in jails. Wherever they were, they went and made sure they were taking their medication and getting what they needed, helping them get the services they needed. They dropped their hospitalizations by 95% and their cost by 45%. So you both get improvements in life, and you get that fiscal accountability for taxpayers. And
0: so is that how you sell it then? Because... Again, I just keep going back to this current political climate. It, it sounds like um, I, I, I mean is, is the only argument here to be made that it's, it, that it's you know, fiscally responsible or I, and, and if so then um, I mean it's kind of the elephant in, in the room which is uh, if so, well, why haven't we expanded Medicaid to you know, roughly a million poor uh, Texans who are eligible?
4: Well, I think it goes back to that flexibility.
0: <laughs> it goes back to that
4: flexibility question. Then that, that seems to be the uh, the number one issue with our legislature when it comes to Medicaid. And so, I think it's it would be helpful to define what flexibilities are looking for. But if you want a block grant, if you want a waiver of flexibility, then go get the waiver. Yeah, yeah. you have to actually
6: and talk,
1: now. and this is—I will say—this isn't the first time expansion has been discussed in Texas. I, I mean, there was a waiver discussion from like 1995 to almost 2000. I, uh, you know, I remember participating in the discussion when the bills passed and the waiver negotiations from 07 and 08 and 09, where a very conservative legislature, before the ACA ever passed, said we want to go out and provide. We want to provide better health to individuals that are low-income. You know, it may not look exactly like Medicaid, but we want to get them out of the ER and provide them better health. And they were attempting to design it the way they wanted to design it. And so, I, I, at some point, you do have to step back and, and understand that, you know, Texas may have a different philosophy than another state, and it is reasonable to give states flexibility and design it around a system that works well for that state and that philosophy. But, I, I just think Medicaid yeah. gives them that flexibility. It, it, yeah.
2: I, I don't want to be the person who th- that seems to suggest that Medicaid's perfect, but there's a lot of flexibility that's just been described, you know, several different examples. Um, and once those waivers, you know, get negotiated and really discussed, I think there's been a real openness on the part of the federal government to uh, states trying to design programs in their expansion process. There are five or six right now. Uh, I think they're Republican-led states that have negotiated uh, a different way to expand their Medicaid program. And I think that there are great lessons in that for Texas if, if there was a real political, philosophical decision made. And I, th- to me, this is the issue, is that in, there are, our decision makers right now are basically people who don't believe that this is necessarily the role of government or the responsibility of the state government, and they would like to not have to mess with it and get it out of the budget if they could. So to me, that's, that's really the fundamental question here is until the politics change and there's an understanding. I mean, this last session, I think even the one before, and I wasn't involved in it and I've observed it, I've never seen a coalition of organizations come together to support something like what was pulled together for Medicaid expansion. It was mind boggling. It was Chambers of Commerce. It was Texas Association of Business. It was the, all the religious groups. It's all the good guy groups, the healthcare groups. Nobody was against it and they couldn't get it passed.
0: And, and, and frankly, I mean, I don't think it got it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think it even got a hearing. No. I, I don't know. I don't know.
1: But I mean, to
2: me, that's but, the real fundamental but issue. To be,
1: I mean, to be realistic, to right. someone who's an elected official, going back to their districts, when you look at <clears> polls, when they talk to people who vote for them, and that they are supposed to represent this was their this is the number one issue that they're concerned about is the affordable care act and then border security yeah. i mean it, it it is that level when they go home to Which their is districts different from and concerns hear about,
5: about, it. about medicaid but i think that's yeah. the now you you've articulated that the political argument actually it's has different. nothing to do with anything that we've discussed about advances in texas or potential advances in texas i think it i think we have to reframe it because i mean it it just as, as, you, as you said, you, know, we, you have everybody saying, okay, this is the right thing to do, and including very traditionally conservative blocks, mm-hmm. and, and yet that's not enough to expand Medicaid. I don't think we should try to expand, I mean, I hate to say that, but I think that the, what we should do is say, gosh, we, we as Texans, we care for, for people, and we've been doing it for a long time, and as Texans, we pay federal taxes, And we like to see some of those come back to Texas, our fair share come back to Texas around health issues. As Texans, we want the freedom to define how it is we meet the needs of our population. And we know we can do better, and if we have more resources, we could. And then use that flexibility to say, okay, let's do it then. And that, you know, what does that look like? We can talk about that. But I think there are ways to do that without ever having to have expanded uh, Medicaid.
2: But I thought so the discussion has been for around a Texas plan, a special yes. plan design. But so we that
5: haven't. I think it's still because we're we're equating that with expanding Medicaid. We're losing ground because then any time we say, you know, that oh we're this is just another way around expanding Medicaid, then we then we have we've lined up a whole bunch of people on the other side.
4: I well, think I think the dialogue has been we're until we transform the current system, we're not going to expand Medicaid, and they argument is that we need a block grant for the current system, then we'll talk expansion. So if we want to pursue pursue a block grant, I don't know of a block grant that's ever been given in any state, but if we have some ideas around that, let's start the discussion. Let's start it moving forward.
0: Well, um, I mean, we spent a lot of time talking about the political realities. Um, I think sort of staying within those constraints, um, I am interested in... Um, what I think is sort of a, a nationwide kind of policy shift that we're seeing more toward value-based purchasing, sort of population health. Um, and I think going along with that, maybe even kind of a broadening definition of what falls under a healthcare cost, whether that's, you know, if providing housing makes somebody healthier, should that be paid for with, with health care dollars, you know, where does this sort of fall? And Elena, I know you have looked at... Um, projects like this and I wonder maybe that's a tough sell in Texas too but I I wonder um
6: Well I I don't I don't know that it's a tough sell it, it I agree with Clay it depends on how you frame it but if you wanted to bring down the cost of the Medicaid program in Texas you would do two things. One of them is that you would reduce the number of people living in poverty because that's what gets you into the program. The reason the Medicaid costs continue to rise is because more and more people are poor in Texas, particularly children. And unless and until that changes, the trajectory will continue to go higher. Um, the second thing we can do is focus on what people in the business call social determinants of health, but the non-medical factors that actually contribute to health and the avoidance of the need for medical care more than medical care itself. And there are examples that have been discussed today about plans providing housing. Um, We've got somebody sitting in the audience here who um, runs a community clinic and is part of a medical-legal partnership that engages uh, lawyers to help clients whose medical problems originate in the housing area. And that is a very creative use of resources to address the root cause of people's health problems and have them avoid needing medical services. And if we can shift more of that money away from medical care and to prevention, and to things that improve health and avoid the need for medical care, then we will both reduce the costs and improve the health status of Texans.
0: Jamie, you you've worked in the Capitol. Uh, do you, what do you think about the feasibility of?
6: Well, that?
1: I think it I think it happens every session, and it happens underneath all of you know the political rhetoric and the high level pieces, you know. But it it takes an issue where someone comes and says, okay, we've now determined that housing really does make an impact. Let's create the flexibility and add it in as a benefit structure or take it over here from this agency and build it and integrate it in. I mean, a good example of substance abuse treatment wasn't a Medicaid benefit five, six years ago. And the legislature appropriated and put it in as a Medicaid benefit, especially for pregnant moms. So they would start getting treatment and start building it in the Medicaid program. So you see these types of benefits get added in all of the time in a way where it's something that wasn't a mandated benefit, but a benefit that the legislature determined was going to improve the overall health and reduce costs for the state of Texas. It just, they, you know, no one ever really talks about those those small pieces that happen during session, but those happen every session, and there are a number of successful um, interventions that occur all the time in Medicaid. And the, the, the legislature is actually very open, especially when you have a, a very good fiscal argument and you can show improvements in outcomes, they will, they will add it into the budget or pass a bill on it. The
4: law there are several states that have Medicaid waivers pending with CMS to add housing in a waiver, Medicaid-funded waiver, and I think that's going to be telling, depending on where, Medi- where CMS goes with that. It's a, because a it, Texas-like waiver that's a district waiver, and they're using dollars to demonstrate that you can address social determinants of health and save on the Medicaid side, so that will be the, interesting.
0: The Feds originally rejected something like that out of New York, right? They did, they but did, mm-hmm.
4: and now they're, they're taking a look at it.
0: Really? Yeah. Um, Clay, I, I'd like to go back to you sort of talking, you know, again about the new New generation of of doctors. I mean, where do you see? I mean, do you see them? Their sort of motivations. Um, uh, you know, carrying. Uh, do they view themselves as sort of healthcare innovators, um, sort of more than they have, or?
5: Well, that's that's what we're trying to trying to do here. We haven't had enough healthcare innovators that are also physicians. I mean, there are some, but um, but not nearly enough. Not thinking about. Um, how we take care of the entire population as opposed to just the one person that's in front of you. Um, and so we're trying to, trying to pick those and train them. So, um, uh, you know, we're a lot of ways we can pick students and we can focus on those that we think could be future leaders. And then we have a lot of leadership training in our curriculum, and then we, they spend a lot of time working on building projects in an interprofessional way to address large scale problems with um, fiscal discipline. That's the other sort of piece of it. Um, and so, yeah, that's gonna be a big part of what we do. And the, you know, it, it actually, it's not just a solution for people who are poor, it's the solutions that we need across the whole mm-hmm. healthcare system. And so the other thing that we're committed to is not to have, okay, there's a series of clinics and, and activities that are for the poor, and a different, nicer waiting room for those with insurance. <laughs> um, you know, it's, we have to, to get away and say that it's the same standard because when we, when we teach our students that and when we accept that ourselves, then, then we, we really aren't embracing this charge to really make everyone healthy. So for us, then the challenge becomes, it's not just, okay, we're going to do this on the side as in, our, in our role to provide health care. We're going to do this on the side as much as we can afford to. And that's kind of the way people have treated management of the medicaid population or or the poor without insurance. Um, Instead we're going to say this is fundamental to our entire an entire mission and we're going to do it the same way for everybody who comes. Uh, That's more challenging. The only way that it will succeed in doing this is by staying kind of in the innovation layer, working on the plans, working on the things that Elena said rightfully are missing. I mean who are these people that are going to take the risk and then how do you coordinate these disparate groups like the physicians to actually perform in a different way to think about um, health in a whole different way. Well,
2: This is all, you know, all of the, these types of things were all embodied in uh, the Affordable Care Act, not for the Medicaid uh, folks so much as Medicare. So it, it's going on in the in the non-Medicaid side of health care also. I mean, all the value-based purchasing, ACOs, all of that is yes. in, is being developed, so physicians' Are, I mean, they're being challenged on all fronts to right. yeah. to change so, the way. But, that and they sometimes they're or. happy about
0: that, and, and maybe sometimes not. Well, but, I can imagine. Right? This absolutely,
5: that's true. But um, <laughs> the but I I would I would say it's it is you know you you put it there. It is very Texan to do it this way. And let me. The reason is that we can actually do this in a uh, much more sort of free enterprise. Entrepreneurial way that allows more freedom to operate, to redefine healthcare, you know, in the right way, and and actually use capitalism to guide it. I mean, it's not going to solve everything, but at least you know we can we can use that as a way to choose the things that are working. That's very Texan. So I I think we've got to get away from is this Obamacare or not? Because I think every time we do that, then we we are in a defensive position. This is this is a very Texan thing. It has been for you know since Texas existed, and it's apolitical. It's about taking better care of people and saving money.
0: So I'd like to pivot a little bit. I promised I'd get to it, and then promptly forgot. Uh, but this 11:15 waiver, which Billy, I think you helped negotiate, <laughs> um, does a number of things, but is it worth about 29 billion dollars. Much of which right now um, is paying for hospitals who are seeing. Um, uninsured or, or high, you know, Medicaid volumes of patients. Um, the Obama administration has made it pretty clear that, um, you know, some of that funding is in jeopardy uh, because we're not expanding coverage. Um, if $29 billion is not enough to sort of change the, the political calculus, I, I, I wonder what, if you're a safety net hospital taking care of these, you um, know uninsured or underinsured people what do you what do you do I don't know <laughs> uh, <clears throat> Texas hospitals
4: have about eight billion dollars a year in uncompensated care um, they get about four billion of that through either the Texas uh, the, the waiver there's about 3.1 billion in a in a uncompensated care pool and then disproportionate share hospital payments compensate for another four billion another billion so they they're still an a need there Uh, What CMS has said that's happened in Florida is that we don't believe uncompensated care pools are the right way to pay for the cost of caring for the uninsured population. And if you think about it, that's probably right, particularly if you have an option that you can provide coverage or you can just pay for emergency room visits. Uh And so they're saying this is there's a more efficient way to do this here. So the waiver has been submitted for renewal. Um, I have every reason to believe that it's going to be renewed. The argument's going to be how big can the uncompensated care pool be. Um, It's not as though um, we kind of get hung up on a Medicaid expansion, and a Medicaid expansion really doesn't solve Texas problems with uncompensated care. Uh, It takes care of potentially a billion dollars, but it doesn't take care of the whole four billion. The Urban Institute says that even if you did a Medicaid expansion, if you fully implement the Affordable Care Act, you're still going to have about 12.8 percent of the population uninsured. That's about 2.9 million people.
0: And that's that's undocumented immigrants or, or who? That's the whole. That's, that's the whole entire uninsured
4: population. So we still have a big problem with uncompensated care. I think the waiver the waiver will get renewed. The argument's going to be over how big the uncompensated care pool should be, and they'll probably back out the cost of what Texas could have avoided had they expanded Medicaid. Um, I
0: think part. I, I think among. Um, Fiscal conservatives, um, and I think there are some some emails um, from Greg Abbott's office that sort of allude to this. But I think there is kind of some skepticism of, you know, whether hospitals really really need the money. I, you know, and and I'm I'm curious what your take is. I mean, I mean are hospitals flush with cash? You know, who like is that is that a fair argument? What's
4: I saw Judge Jenkins here earlier from Dallas, <laughs> and um, he could probably talk about Parkland and. and- Parkland has 750 million in uncompensated care. And if you look at the cost of uncompensated care in, um, in, even in Travis County, how much does that pay into your property taxes? Texas has the second highest, second or third highest uh, health insurance premiums in the nation. Mm-hmm. The second or third highest property taxes in the nation. A lot of that is being driven by that uncompensated care burden. Cost shifting. Your mm-hmm. cost shifting. So your insurance premiums are going up, your property taxes are going up. Somebody's paying for all this. Um, Harris Health, Harris County Hospital District, a couple, I think it was last year, was talking about having layoffs because of their... They did. Right. And they'll have a $75
6: million deficit this year.
4: It's real. It's real. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've been able to hold together a patchwork in Texas based on their six or seven public hospitals that have really stepped up and they're the safety net of are holding the entire Medicaid system for hospitals together. Uh, to fund a lot of this uncompensated care and at some point the system is just going to break. You can't go on like this forever until you look at some different funding sources uh, because you can't have these six or seven counties funding the the Medicaid program to make up for the shortfalls in funding and for the uncompensated care burden.
0: I I think I am going to have maybe one or two more questions but uh, soon we'll invite it, we'll, we'll turn it over to audience questions so I'd invite anybody who's just itching to ask that. Medicaid finance question that I know <laughs> is burning on all of your minds so please step up to the mic. Um, but sort of on the last point, there's been a lot of news lately yeah. Yeah. about... that
2: uh, <laughs> Whoa.
0: <laughs> wow. <laughs> um, pediatric therapy providers in the Medicaid program who took uh, a pretty substantial budget cut this cycle. There's been some news over how much of that uh, budget cut is actually going to take effect. Uh, states in court, you know, there are a lot of questions, but um, I, I'm curious, I mean, how does Texas address, uh, or any state really, how do you pay providers fairly? I mean, what, you know, what is the answer um, to, <laughs> to cutting, um, I mean, if, if businesses are having to close that are providing care to these, um, you know,
3: I thought you people, had a how good do you deal with on that? that?
4: Well, in 2011, we carved drugs into managed care and we had pharmacies doing the same thing that the therapy providers are doing now. The world was going to end, pharmacies were going to close, um, we were, we, everything was just going to stop, Medicaid clients wouldn't be able to access services and, and the world was going to end. And did the world end? No, and I don't, think, I don't think one pharmacy closed the result of that, some sold to, to change or did something. But I think that you know, any time you're going to change a policy that's been in place for a number of years on reimbursement, there's going to be a change in the business model and I think they're looking at revenue and you're, there may be some decline in the number of therapy providers. So I think that, uh, you know, you look at the amount of the, uh, the rate reduction and see, is that reasonable? Uh, but it's always a little bit worse than what it's being portrayed in, in, in the media. And that's my experience.
0: Um, great. Well, uh, I guess we'll start. We've got the longer side over here. So we'll open it up to audience questions. Just one final reminder. I copy my boss and say this. Just, uh, we welcome questions. Just please make sure they end with a question mark. (laughs) (laughs)
7: Um, Okay, I'm from Waco, Texas, where we are... Oh, where'd that come from? Oh, Oh, hey,
0: Please
7: identify yourself. <laughs> awesome. My name's Ashley Thornton. I'm from Waco, Texas, where we are healing, where we are working very hard as a community on uh, health-related issues, um, poverty-related issues, a lot of these things that are tangled together. <coughs> we have a lot of citizens who are hopefully coming along and getting involved in that uh, work. So what I would ask you is if you are a citizen, a voter, you know, somebody who's not in the medical, healthcare care uh, business full-time, and you're willing to spend 30 minutes an hour every week kind of educating yourself about it where where would you point us what newsletter blog something would we read if we had you know a a limited amount of time of a person who's not full-time in this business but but a group of people who are very sincerely concerned in helping our specific community where would you point us
2: about medicaid in particular about no well
7: about i would say Medicaid, healthcare, and kind of public health, how can we as a community, some of these things that you've said have been very creative, which are things that we could probably bring about in our community, but how do we learn more about them?
6: Probably the Kaiser Family Foundation has the best website with routine information. They do a couple of things, a lot of original research, (laughs) but they also collect news clips from around the country and you can get on a daily or weekly. Uh, email. You can identify particular topics you're interested in, but they have a wealth of information. It's national, so you have the ability to look across multiple states, or just look at Texas, or look nationally. And they
1: have a state-by-state database that you right. can compare with maps. Probably any any statistic you want on health care,
5: and down to the county at the Commonwealth.
1: Yeah, Commonwealth is very, very good too. Commonwealth. And they all have weekly. They all have daily or weekly newsletters.
3: Yeah, that. Hi, uh, I'm Carl Jones. I live in Spicewood. I work in Midland. and trying to get my arms around the Medicaid expansion issue. And I think i want to start with asking everyone on this panel to show over the raise of your hand. Do you support the Medicaid expansion in the state of Texas? <laughs> I have, I'm
0: agnostic.
3: So we have unanimous. Okay, so it's unanimous. Yeah. Why then? If it makes economic sense, fiscal sense, uh, sense from the standpoint of insuring so many uh, Texans, and and the last time I looked, Texas still has the highest uninsured rate in the country. The hospitals, the hospital boards and the managements embraced the notion. If it makes so much economic and financial sense, it it just leads us to the uh, conclusion that the only reason we're not expanding Medicaid in this state is simply because it's part of Obamacare. Yes. In other yes. words, if Romney would have been elected and, and introduced this, it would have been raised, it would have been accepted and uh, endorsed. It just leads me to the conclusion that is that the reason? Is it pure political?
6: Yes. 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 <laughs> and, and Obamacare is Romney care, remember? Yeah. That's where it came from. Yeah. Yeah.
4: Um, to be fair, though, the, uh, a lot of our legislators um, have sticker shock every legislative session when they look at Medicaid. And they've had this um, big, big thing they've got to keep funding. And they keep hearing that you don't have the flexibility and all those kinds of things. So I think they're, they're a bit distrustful of the federal government. They see that sticker shock every session. So they're a bit remiss to jump into this thing and expand Medicaid. But I think at, at some point, all their questions have got to be answered. Every state that's done a Republican state that's done an alternative Medicaid expansion has a poison pill in it in the waiver that right. says if you ever change the funding uh, mechanism on this, we're out of it. Right. And so that's I fair. think that's what people need to, what maybe our, our legislators need to better understand is that you can opt out of this. You're not tied, this is not something you're married to for life. You can get out if the funding mechanism changes. So maybe it's, maybe it's more education. I don't know.
1: Next question. Please. Hi. I'm Susanna. Um, I'm a high school senior taking dual credit classes at Austin Community College. And I'm hopefully going to the nursing program here fall 2016 if I get in, um, or somewhere else um, if I don't, <laughs> because it's got a crazy acceptance rate. but. Um, I'm also
7: interested in public service because I mean I'm here on a Saturday when I'm 17, so I am interested
1: in public <laughs> service. Um, so Clay, you talked about being a healthcare innovator. So how would you know? I'm kind of setting up my future, and I want to go into nursing. I want to go into healthcare, but I am interested in healthcare reform. How would I go into that? And then also, should we have classes or professors purposefully teaching teaching students to look? innovatively to look for more than just do your job.
5: Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. So I'm thrilled you're here and spending your Saturday with us. Thank thank you for doing that, good luck in getting in. Um, The, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, we have in almost every other sector we have kind of a marketplace where we, we invite entrepreneurs to bring their ideas. And some of them are crazy and they'll die and some of them are great. And they create all kinds of new companies. So in technology, just think about you know consumer-facing technologies. It's an unrestrained. It's a beautiful thing, right? Entrepreneurism in that space. Um, you get, you know, we've all engaged with crazy things, but you know, good things come out. Fitbit is a good example of a little, you know, something that an engineer came up with. Um, it doesn't help health for more than about six weeks and only for people who you know, don't need it, basically. But it, um, you know, it is a deal. So how do we actually create a, um, an environment for entrepreneurial ideas that improve, that improve health? Um, we currently don't have that. It's, we're too doctor-focused, um, we're too hospital-focused. There has to be a way to say, okay, give us your best ideas. If they're ideas that improve the value in healthcare, then we'll partner with you and see if it can work. And actually, that's what we're trying to set up in Austin. Austin's a great place, because it's already so, I almost yeah. said wacky, I didn't say wacky. It is uh, very entrepreneurial with a lot of great ideas, and so it can accept that, that challenge. But that's exactly what we need to do, and then that needs to be a part of how we train our folks. So absolutely, and it's a big part of it, and, and for us, it's interprofessional. So on day one, the, our, the med students are in classes with nursing students, social work, and uh, pharmacy, and now engineering, to join.
1: And I'm a registered nurse, and so I will tell you from my own experience, you will find when you're in your classes, they will be encouraging you to participate outside of just the traditional models of care, and to reach out to other disciplines, and to reach out in broader ways of thinking, and how you can participate in healthcare.
0: Hi, uh, my name is Philip Martin. I work for a group called Progress Texas. We do a lot of advocacy for healthcare expansion. Uh, I wanted to ask about an idea that Chairman, Coleman Ray, Chairman Garner Coleman, stay right from Houston, he raised during session as a trial balloon and then brought it up again this morning in the panel about a 1332 waiver, which is considered a global waiver, which basically would allow Texas to completely rewrite all of its healthcare laws. We could start applying for that, I believe, in 2017. Uh, I'm just curious what your thoughts are about it and if that might be a potential path forward. For just the bottom line goal of cover more Texans,
4: um, I would uh, do. I would pursue that definitely because if the legislature and our our leader, state leadership has has taken issue with Obamacare, and through Section thirteen thirty two waivers, you can waive every provision in in the Obamacare except for a few, and the ones that they particularly have been vocal about about the individual mandate, impacts on small employers, all those kinds of things. And you can couple that with a it's called a Section eleven fifteen waiver for Medicaid. You can put those two things together, and you can redesign your entire health care delivery system. So I think it's something that we need to do quickly uh, to really, uh, if, we, if we're not going to expand Medicaid, if we want to redesign everything, that's the vehicle to do it and to get the federal dollars. So, yes, I think it's something we should be seriously taking a look at.
1: Great, if we
4: could do it.
8: Hi, uh, my name is Blair Cushing. I'm currently a first year resident in family medicine. Um, and I have a question for y'all regarding the global payment or bundled payment options. Um, so for the past couple of years, I've been thinking about this in terms of uh, it sounds like a great idea, but it's one of those things where I feel like most of the gains especially as far as the physicians are concerned with the shared savings model, are going to happen on the outset. They're going to happen within the first couple of years. And then thereafter, it's going to be harder and harder for them to be able to do anything. And therefore, the physicians absorb more and more risk. And I actually, um, about a month ago, posed this to um, a healthcare group in the Bay Area in California um, that was one of the only groups in that area that had actually been profitable off of the shared savings model. And I said, you know, what happens after a couple years in? And they said, well, actually, we're already set up to get out of it because we do. We see that coming. So I'm just wondering, um, I guess, from your perspective, your experience, other um healthcare groups that you know that have utilized this model, what do you see as the long-term s- sustainability of those types of options?
5: Well, it, it can't work that way, right? You can't, you can't go from your successes in the prior year and say, okay, well, those are last year's successes. Now you've got to do better. Um, it has to, we have to think about it. Okay, we have this trajectory for healthcare costs, right? Actually, I should probably do it like this. Yeah. <laughs> and and if, if then you change it slightly like this, then just pay me like this. Pay me 95% of what you'd pay if I didn't exist and then I'll work within that margin. That's the way we have to do it. And it'll, if, if we start seeing successes and then entities flipping out, you know, so yes, you can do it, but now we don't choose to do it anymore because you're not paying us the way, well then we're starting on the, on the I don't, I don't want to call it provider side, on the health system delivery side, dictating more how those contracts are, are, are created. So, now, I think we're I think we're starting to see that actually the stuff that we're doing on a on a microcosm level here, setting up now in in this area, it's it's all it's more based on you know. So basically, the, saying we can't renegotiate the benchmarks every single year. No, yeah. no, that's just that you know that's not fair. You, you know, you made <laughs> substantial progress. You should get you should get rewarded for that in, in subsequent years. And then that's where the competition exists between the entities on. Not you know they're uh, against each other eventually on some fixed price that exceeds what it it costs them to deliver that better care.
8: Hi, my name's Elisa. I'm going to be a PT student next year, but um, just by experience, I've seen that most um, healthcare providers' issue with Medicaid is more about the administrative costs. And I was wondering if there has been any sort of policy reform. We've talked about funding. We've talked about Um, provisions to care for people, but what about the middleman? Um, Has there been any reforms about the inefficiency of administering the refunds or the paperwork or that sort of thing?
1: I mean, there's been quite a bit in Texas. Right now, you know, for example, all the prior authorization forms are standardized. You know, there, there are a number, and right now if you're a provider that wants to be credentialed, Everyone goes through a standardized credentialing system. And then for Medicaid, all 20 health plans are now partnering together to actually have one credentialing process and one credentialing renewal process. So a provider only has to do it once. So you're seeing that type of thing happen already in the market. And there's not, I'm not going to not, not say there's a lot of admin that goes on with that, but it would make more sense for the payment structure and the processing of payments to become more accurate and not have all the redundancy that goes in with it but what you are seeing is that happen the more the but, more technology that keeps getting added into it but,
5: yeah but the real way to, to make it yeah. more efficient is just is not to be building on a pr- pr- procedure for, for every office, single visit, thing like or for overall you know and then to pay a system to care for a certain number of people or, or group of people, and then, and then the system works out how it pays the entity. So, for it. example,
1: PT, did that person get the therapy they needed? Did the outcome that they needed to get through to that point happen, and what was that worth versus each 15 increment of time and billing for it?
5: And it's a good question because you know, it's estimated 15 percent – of healthcare costs are related to those admin functions, right? So it's a huge amount and it's much higher than in other countries.
9: Thank you. Uh, my name is Stuart Greenfield. I'm a 15 year retired state employee. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, the question I had a couple of questions, but here's one that I have What would be your thoughts if the state, in essence, created a group? combining all individuals who are covered with public sector dollars into one plan. And then went out and had bids on that. I mean, that, I think, would cover about 25% of the state. You'd roll Medicaid into the counties, the cities, the school districts, ERS, TRS care, you'd have to, You'd have to give exceptions to UT and a and because they're such exceptional places. But other than that, uh, so I'd like to know your thoughts. Well, back
2: in 1995, I, I proposed that to the legislature. <laughs> I, I really did. And? I had to have my head sewed back on. My body. <laughs>
3: um,
2: the reaction from the uh, state employee unions, uh, pretty much everybody hated that idea. I mean, it died really, really quickly. It, it, for a million, I mean, there were so many different segments of the public sector uh, employees and provider uh, entities that just had no interest in, in being anywhere near anything called Medicaid.
9: Okay. Well, no, we could call it Pericare because Obama did, doesn't. Would that be I, I
2: had ideas for what Would to call that it Would be better then, branding? But.
4: <laughs> there are some Brandy states that have important. created like a health care authority, and they're bringing in that Medicaid, ERS, TRS, uh, even prison care, all those kinds of things, but none that has really evolved to that point. And you're you're right. If you have more lives, you become a value purchaser of services, and there's it, a lot that you can do, yeah. mm-hmm. um, particularly with payment reform, global capitation, a whole lot of things. But, oh, thank you. Uh, you
9: have those people who just don't want to... So prepare.
2: timing is everything. Maybe yeah. it's time to... Put that into a
9: 1332 way? My life expectancy, I have another 15 years. So I'll work on it. Me too, actually.
7: Hi, my name's Azra. Um, I worked this past legislative session. And I remember a big thing was about Medicaid, how a lot of doctors, um, and my husband's also in residency at the UT Dell Mm -hmm. Medical Program, and they would talk about how Medicaid, they're so underfunded and that's why they're so unwilling to take it. And I guess the question in the legislature would kind of come up where we would ask the doctors, and I would ask my husband, well, how much do you want? Like, And so the kind of response that we would get is that they didn't have a, it was a very vague response. There wasn't a particular number, and I wanted, and so I guess my question is, is, is it really true that you can't give a particular number, that it has to be vague, or that there is a number that you can give kind of, I'm not saying like overall, I'm saying like per procedure, that. You can charge fifty dollars, and this is what it's going to cost, average across the board
5: right. for all doctors. Yeah, it's a really interesting question. So, actually, if you look at um, average Medicaid reimbursement compared to Medicare. And you, and you look at that, we're, we're about, uh, was it 60%, 65, 65%? 65%. For, for, for it, care? It,
1: but it depends on what you're talking yeah, about. It, there are some Medicaid across, rates that are close to Medicare. Yeah, but overall on average,
5: yeah. it comes out to about 65. But it, it's not as though Texas is particularly low or particularly high. Okay. We're, you know, there are states that are, are way blue that are, that are lower than us in states that are, are red, that are substantially higher. And some pay more than, than Meta, uh, Medicare. Alaska is an example. Right. So the, the reality is what, what the docs are doing is they're, um, they're making money on a different pool of patients and they're using that to cross fund. And you can do that more if you're in an organized system of care, not in private practice. So that's why you see more of them in organized systems of care. You can do that more if it's part also of your mission, like in the public entities, the academic medical centers. And I don't know what it is in Texas, but what do you think it's probably 70% or more of the? What's the care of Medicaid patients in the academic medical centers? Is probably it's going to be really high, whatever it is, whatever that number is. And and so what they're doing is you know at at um, you know, wherever it is, uh, uh, Parkland. They're um, they're averaging all these things out so that they're, and that's why nobody can answer the question. If you wanted to do it right, you'd pay cost, and then it would not be an incentive or disincentive. And then you would you could then lower the insurance costs, right? The Um, only the
1: only issue I would say with cost is is that when we've paid costs in the past, you can see. Cost being driven up. Yeah, yeah. so yeah. we had we used to, we used yeah. to have a hospital yeah. specific cost right. versus all hospitals average cost, and so you you want you have an incentive to drive up. One thing I will say is ninety percent of the well, Medicaid, that's a good point. It nine, depends on
5: how you calculate costs. I, I okay. totally agree. Ninety
1: percent of the Medicaid populations now in managed care, and what the state does while they have a fee schedule, all the managed care companies negotiate their own rate and they are required to have an adequate network. And depending on, and so to have that adequate network, they have to, based on a market, go and negotiate rates. There are many times that they negotiate rates much higher than what the state pays. And there are times where they pay lower than the state pays. What they do is they go out and say how many OBGENs do I need to take care of Medicaid patients and they are required contractually. They will have, they have huge liquidated damages if they don't do this. They have to have that network. So they go out and negotiate what rate it takes to have it in. So what I would say what we've moved towards is more of a market-based negotiation on raids, that what it takes to have providers, the right amount of network of providers participating in Medicaid.
2: How well is that enforced? I'm curious. Uh, It's enforced. It's it's super,
1: I mean, it is very enforced.
2: Because I, I, I had a person living in my house when I was overseas, and she had the unfortunate situation of her life, circumstances changed, she got on Medicaid. And she was assigned a doctor, she was on Medicaid Managed Care in Austin, Texas, and she was assigned a doctor in Temple.
1: Yeah. I mean, they've been, and there was a recent bill passed on network adequacy, and they have been stre- strengthening it, evolving it. It's been getting stronger and stronger. I will also say that the, the, the plans compete against each other. There's at least four plans, and there has to be more than two plans, and there's almost four plans in every urban area. And the consumers talk about it. They rate them. There's consumer satisfaction surveys on this. If the consumers don't like the providers in one plan, they all move to another plan. So for that plan to keep making business and keep making money, they have to keep providers happy and have a good network. Otherwise, the the Medicaid consumers are smart enough, and they do move when they don't like the provider base in the plan.
6: And we keep on talking twice today. Someone has said, oh, there aren't enough doctors in Medicaid and doctors won't take Medicaid. That's not true. The TMA puts out a survey that shows that. But if you look at the doctors who even see patients who are in the Medicaid program, because all we have in Medicaid really are disabled people, kids, and pregnant women. Right. So there are many kinds of doctors that wouldn't be seeing Medicaid patients anyway. and. While the overall number of doctors that do want to take new patients is not on the rise, there is a sufficient number of physicians in the state that are willing to and want to take Medicaid. And as Jamie said, they comp- the plans compete for those providers. It, which is not to say that the rates all shouldn't be higher. I mean, that we couldn't spend more money on it all. But um, I would push back on the TMA uh, saying that um, no doctor wants to be in Medicaid because they don't get paid enough because we have plenty of doctors participating. I mean, in some
1: areas of Texas, the health plans are now going out and saying, I'm picking and choosing higher quality OB-GYNs because I have that option. So I'm going to make sure I have really great OB-GYNs in my network. They have that, I mean, that's how well they've been able to build their networks and say like Houston.
2: And there are a lot of reasons that doctors, there are other reasons that doctors don't want to take Medicaid patients that is not tied to... How much they're being right. reimbursed? Yeah, so I mean there are th- other more complicated. And, and this is a
1: good issue for Dr. Johnston in that a huge number of increasing population of Medicaid are individuals with intellectual disabilities, mm-hmm. and we are having a major problem when they have an acute care need and need to go to a physician of finding a physician that will take them,
0: mm-hmm.
1: just off of a philosophical reason.
0: Well, I think we're about out of time, but yeah. thank you all so much. And That's thank you. Thanks.
5: Yeah, we know. we know. The IDD. Yeah, we an got an to hour? figure that out. We're you know trying to help the state hospital here, so at least.